Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. All right, if you guys would, go ahead and make your way back to your seat. We'll get started. Also, just real quick, if you have an empty seat that's located right next to you, would you mind raising your hand? So everyone in the back, if you are looking for a seat, the the people with their hands raised, if you would leave your hand up and uh, leave up a finger with how many seats there are next to you. So, and if you could do that just for a minute or so, that would be great until those seats fill up. If you need to alternate hands, that's fine. If you are in the back and you're looking for a seat, the people with their hands up are showing you how many seats are available next to them. We have, I feel like we're at an auction. We have one here for, we have two seats here, three right there, one up here, one, one, two. Again, if you're at the back, I know it's a little tough to hear in here, but if you're in the back, the people with their hands lifted up are, are showing you how many seats they have next to them. So if you would like a seat, there's still a seat, uh, two seats up here, a couple seats up here. All right. Welcome. He is risen. That wasn't bad. As Brian said, our mission is to make Jesus a hero, and so I'll say this, we're, we're in a new place and, and a new facility, and uh, uh, we've said this from the outset of GCC, is that we're not here to have a perfect production, we're here to lift up a perfect Savior, and so I can appreciate uh, the flaws and the kinks as we work all that stuff out, as long as at the end of the day what we're doing is lifting up Jesus Christ, amen? All right, this morning, one quick thing too, Brian mentioned it uh, for man camp, I will say this, is that today's actually the last day to register. So if you're considering man camp, w- w- which is a men's retreat over at Washington Family Ranch in Eastern Oregon, today's the last day to sign up for that. So if you have questions about that, come talk to me, come talk to Brian, come talk to Dylan afterwards. We would love to answer any questions that you have for that and to help get you signed up for that. So that's actually next weekend that a good portion of the men in here will be attending that. So this morning we're going we're gonna to be in the book of 1 Samuel. So you can grab one of the black Bibles around the room. If you actually don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible, and that's our gift to you. Take that, it's yours. If you own a Bible, don't steal ours. It's not the Oprah show. But if you need a Bible, grab one of those black Bibles and write your name in it. It's, it's all yours. We're going to be in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, chapter 17. The main point of today's sermon is one and done. The one is W-O-N. I believe it's up there. It might be on the screens where you can see it. If not, it's W-O-N. So one and done is the main point. So if there's something I want you to walk away with today, remembering it's that statement, that it's one and done. 
I'll give you guys a minute to turn to 1 Samuel. It's in your Old Testament, chapter 17. We're actually going to start with verse 17. For most of us, the reality of a bully is something we can relate to or have seen or have felt. And so we know that bullies in life and from personal experience can cause a lot of fear, can cause a lot of angst. They can make you almost feel as if you're at war because every day you feel the weight of seeing the bully or uh, the threat that the bully poses to you or to someone that you love and care about. And so that feeling is a horrible feeling and the feeling of, uh, of a bully symbolizes this, that there's this person who is much bigger and much stronger and there's nothing really that you can do about it. And so that, that, that feeling, like I said, can make us feel as though we're in a state of war and oftentimes Christians can oftentimes feel as though we're living in a state of war, as though it's not won and it's not done. And this is a story that I've heard in the past and it's a true story and I think it will help bring some context to what the sermon is about today as we get into 1 Samuel let me read this. This is based on a true story. <clears throat> Haru Onada was 20 years old when he was called to join the army. On December 17, 1944, Lieutenant Haru Onado left for the Philippines. Here, Onada was given orders by Major Yoshimi Tangaguchi. Onada was ordered to lead the Labang garrison in guerrilla warfare. As Onada and his comrades were getting ready to leave on their separate missions, they stopped to report to the division commander. The division commander ordered, this is what he said, you are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. Until then, so, so long as you have one soldier, you are to continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give up your life voluntarily. Once on the island of Labang, Onada was supposed to blow up the pier at the harbor and destroy the Lebang airfield. Unfortunately, the garrison commanders who were worried about other matters decided not to help Onada on his mission. And soon the island was overrun by the Allies. The, re the remaining Japanese soldiers, including Onada, retreated into the inner regions of the island and split up into groups. As these groups dwindled in their size in several attacks, the remaining soldiers split into cells of three or four people. They lived very close together with only few supplies. The clothes they were wearing, a small amount of rice, and each had a gun with a, a limited ammunition. Rashing the rice was difficult and caused fights, but they supplemented it with coconuts and bananas. Every once in a while, they were able to kill civilians for their cows. Onana first saw a leaflet that claimed the war was over in October of 1945, so about a year later. When another cell had killed a cow, they found a leaflet left behind by the islanders which read, the war ended on August 15th, come down from the mountains. But as they sat in the jungle, the leaflet just didn't seem to make sense, for another cell had just been fired upon a few days ago. If the war were over, why would they still be under attack? No, they decided the leaflet must be a clever ruse by the allied propagandist. Again, the outside world tried to contact the survivors living on the island by dropping leaflets out of a Boeing B-17 near the end of 1945. Printed on these leaflets was the surrender order from General Yamashita of the 14th Area Army. Having already hidden on the island for a year and with only proof of the end of the war being a leaflet, Onada and the others scrutinized every letter and every word on every piece of paper. 
Leaflet after leaflet was dropped. Newspaper after newspaper was left. Photographs and letters from relatives were dropped. Friends and relatives spoke out over loudspeakers. There was always something suspicious, so they never believed that the war had really ended. Year after year, for the next 30 years, Onada lived on this island as though the war was still going on. Four men huddled in the rain, searched for food, and sometimes attacked villagers. Finally, all three of his other comrades were killed. They fired on the villagers because, and he quotes, we considered people dressed as islanders to be enemy troops in disguise for our enemy spies. For 30 years, Onada lived as though the war was still going on, even though it had ended in 1945. As we approach the text today, and as we talk about bullies and talk about threats and talk about the things that can make us feel at war, what we understand is this, is that this is the story that probably every room, uh, person in this room can relate to or knows or at some point has heard because it's the story of David and Goliath. And so it's a story we're fam familiar with because the David and Goliath story symbolizes that there is one person who is outmatched by a greater threat, a greater bully, a greater enemy. And so the nation of Israel found themselves with an unbeatable bully named Goliath. A giant so big that no one wanted to fight him. A giant so big that he stood about nine feet tall. And for 40 days he would go out into the valley because the nation of Israel wasn't camped on one side and the Philistines were camped on the other. And he would go out into the valley and mock the nation of Israel. And what he was doing was actually mocking their God. And he would challenge them and say, is there no one? Is there no one from Israel? And Saul, their mighty king, who we know was taller and, 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 and bigger than all the others of his time, was too afraid to go out and fight him. So this went on. But what I want us to focus on today is a couple things. One, there's, there's, there's this talking aspect where David is talking to Goliath. And so talking in words back with no action are really useless. But the other thing that I want us to look at and really zero in on, which is great since we have a bunch of kids in the room and it's Easter, is the beheading of Goliath. So we're going to look at the importance of that and why it comes up in the text and why it comes up so much in the text. So here's, here's what we're going to look at. Here's our Easter services. We're going to look at it's one and done. We're going to zero in on the beheading of Goliath. So a little coffee in the morning, a little beheading. You guys can head off to your brunch and call it a good day. I also know this, there's kids in the room, and so nothing I'm going to say is not within our Bible, and, and it's all going to be okay for our kids to hear. And so, um, and it's actually going to be really good for parents because it gives you something to also talk with your kids about because many times there's a misunderstanding of what the story of David and Goliath is actually about. So with that, let's dive in. Here we have it. For 40 days, this massive giant named Goliath who's standing nine feet tall is going into the valley of Elah, and he is screaming out to the Israelites and basically calling them and, and their gods chickens. And so we have this young boy named David who is the youngest of, of, of eight sons. And David is a shepherd. His job is to tend and keep sheep, which was a very actually difficult and tough job. But what's going on is that this father, David's father Jesse, he, he wants David to take uh, his, his, his brother some food and to take the commander of the food and to check in on him and give some feedback of what's going on. So that's where we pick up in, in uh, verse 17. It says this, And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, and then ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp, 
were your brothers. To your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Look at this. He is asked by his dad to go and take some food. Why? Because his brave, victorious, courageous brothers are out fighting a war. And they're probably famished from staring at a giant day after day and not engaging actually in a battle whatsoever. But his dad doesn't know that. And in fact, David doesn't know that. No one knows that. And so he sends him there to, by all means, David, please go take your brother some food. They're probably exhausted. And so is the commander. David shows up. What does he find out? That no one's doing anything. And so he starts asking questions. And what the questions are is, what's going on and who is this guy? And, and, and uh, person after person is telling him, there's this guy named Goliath. He's massive. He's this giant. He's going out and he's mocking us and he's mocking the nation of Israel. Ultimately, he's mocking God. David is outraged. He is furious. And so his fury gets back to Saul because David's saying, I'll go fight this guy if no one else is going to do it. So that's where we pick up. We're jumping ahead in the story to verse 32. And David said to Saul, these verses are up there on the screen if you'd like to see them, if that's easier for you. And David said to Saul, I love this, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. And Saul, who has very obvious facts to point out, says this in 33. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So what happens? David tells him something. Jump down to verse 36. He tells him what it's been like as a shepherd, and he summarizes it in 36. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. In, in, in other words, your words are accurate. You may be right, I am but a youth. And maybe I'm not qualified on paper. But God has prepared me because I've fought lions and bears. And, and this man, no matter what, he's defying God. So he's outraged. And so what happens? Saul agrees and says, okay, go for it. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. This could be a sermon for another time, but notice what Saul does. Saul gives David everything that he puts his trust in, armor and a sword and all those things. And David says, no thanks. And he takes all of it off. Why? Because David knows at the end of the day, the one who's going to deliver him is God. But what's actually going on here is this. Is that we have a very unlikely warrior. David. Who's going, who's going to go out and fight practically naked. Completely outmatched. And he's fighting with a really odd weapon of choice. A sling and a stone. Now, I can only speculate because the text doesn't say. 
but it would leave one to imagine or wonder what the soldiers of the Israel army must have thought when they saw this young boy running out practically naked to fight on their behalf with a sling and a stone. You would probably start weighing out your options if the Philistines were decent people or not and how they would be as slave owners. Because whoever loses a war becomes slaves to the others. And here goes this young boy running out to the battle line to face this giant. And so he runs out, and, and, and there, there's some banter that started on Goliath's part, and, and, and he actually says in verse 43, he says, uh, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He's like, am I a dog that you can just beat me with a stick? Is that what you think that I am? Saul is offended. Why? It's actually quite funny, but even before that in 42, he says that he is a youth, so he's young, he's ruddy, and he's handsome in appearance. So Saul's expecting a warrior, and out comes an Abercrombie and Fitch model to fight him. And so he is, he is frustrated that this, this is the man that you've actually thought who, who, who could stand up against me. And in verse 46, David has some words to say of his own. Let's look there, verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Those were David's words. It's actually far more respectful than what Goliath was saying to him. But he said, today I'm going to cut off your head. And verse 47, jump down, says this. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, look here, not with sword and spear. Not with sword or spear. The author makes a point to let it be known that it's not with a sword or a spear that the Lord's going to save. We know how the story ends. David runs out with a sling and a stone and he whips it and he hits Goliath in the head with a stone and he knocks him down, right? And then what happens in verse 50? So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. Look at what the author does. He prevailed with what? A sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Why does he need to say this again? There was no sword in the hand of David. Why? He's going at great cost to show you that it wasn't a sword, the common weapon of the day that David fought with. It was an uncommon weapon, a sling and a stone. Verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath. In other words, he didn't even have time to draw it. And he killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So David's words were all words. Big talk, no action if he doesn't back it up. What, what, what happens? He, he, he hits him in the head with his stone. The giant falls down and he cuts off his head with a sword. And then their champion, the bully, the threat, is defeated. So the whole army flees. And then read verse 54. It's up on the screen. Notice again. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But his armor, his sword of Goliath, is what's talked about there, he put in the temple. What's this mean? Beheading someone in, in, in the ancient Near East was actually a very common thing to do. And the reason why is because you fought with arrows and you fought with swords. And so if there's a chance that you could shoot someone with an arrow and there's, some, there's a chance you could stab someone with a sword and they could actually still survive that. They could heal from that. They could recover. But why was beheading such a big deal? Because when someone's head is removed from their body, that is a clear proof that it's one and done. 
The fight is over. Your threat is removed. The, the war has ended. This great enemy that stood against you, he is completely defeated. When you are holding the head of your greatest enemy and the greatest bully, then what do you come to realize? The threat is no more. It's won. It's done. The enemy's been, been removed. Jerusalem no longer has to live in fear with this angst. And he puts the armor in his tent. Why? You can put the sword away. Why? Because the sword in the hands of a headless man does no good. His weapon is completely disarmed. It was really, really good news for all of them who had lived in fear and terror and were terrified to see that Goliath was dead and it was a for sure done deal. How does this relate to Easter? What does this have to do with Easter? If we go on to the next slide, we'll see this. That this isn't the first time in the text that we see the importance of a head. In fact, at the very beginning of our Bibles in Genesis 3, actually talks about a head there. So what happens in Genesis is this. This is very important for you to know for the story as a whole. Is that we see this head crushing happening in Genesis 3, the very beginning of our Bible. Why? Because God is the creator of everything and, and of mankind. And so God creates human. Why? Not out of need, out of desire for a relationship, but then man rebels against God. What does that mean? Is that man chooses to worship what God's created instead of their creator God. And this is, we would call it man's rebellion or the fall of man. And so what happens is sin enters the picture, and sin's not a word that we like, and the reason why is because if you're in this room and you're a Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, wherever you stand, the word sin offends us, because what do we say? We say, I'm a good person. And I'm not going to debate that with you. And, and I would say if you are viewing yourself to the person to your left or right or to your neighbor, to the people that you work with, you, 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 you probably are in, in, in that aspect a good person. But that's not God's measuring. That's not God's standard. And this is important for you to know. God's standard of good and, and, and what we understand his goodness to be is a state of utter perfection complete sinlessness and everyone in this room would probably be honest enough to, to admit I'm not utterly perfect, uh, uh, perfect and I'm not completely sinless and so that's God's standard of good and so what happened is when man rebelled this sin kept man from being able to dwell in the presence of God that's what we call the fall this broke the heart of God God's action and his plans that follow next are not a, a, a vengeful God, a God out to get mankind. God's actions that we see next are filled with the heart of love to figure out how to reconcile this relationship back to man. And this is where Gen Genesis three fifteen comes in. It says this, I will put enmity between your, you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what's happening here? In the very beginning of our Bibles, this brokenness happened and God has a plan. What's his plan? He's talking to the serpent, which symbolizes Satan. And what he's saying is this, is look, there's going, there's, going to be, uh, there's going to be a rescuer. Here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a man that is going to come to the offspring of Eve. 
And what's going to happen, and he's talking to Satan, he's talking to the serpent, he's, is he's saying this, is he is going to absolutely crush your head. But in the process, he's going to be wounded. He's going to be hurt. And so God tells of his plan. What is going on here? This is a greater David that's coming, and it's a greater Goliath that's coming. You see, Goliath and David is just a type a very small picture of the greater Goliath, the greater enemy that we have, which is sin, Satan, and death. And the reason why is because Goliath could be defeated by a man, by David. The Goliath of sin, Satan, and death needed an eternal God to defeat that. Which if we fast forward in our Bibles, we have in the person of Jesus Christ because he's born and what happens is this, is he lives a completely sinless, perfect life like we talked about. That is God's standard. So he measures up to God's standard and he lives that life, and, and, and he walks this earth perfectly, blamelessly. And what did he do? He fought, practically naked, outmatched on paper, a very unlikely hero from Nazareth. What did he fight with? A very unlikely weapon, a cross, one that no one would expect. People expected a hero, a warrior, who was going to reign over the Roman government. And he said, I am going to fight a war, and the only thing is, is I'm going to be the only one fighting it. There's going to be bloodshed, horrendous bloodshed. The only thing is, it's only going to be my bloodshed. On the cross, what he was doing was defeating the things that we cannot defeat in and of ourselves. We cannot live up to God's standards. We cannot live a sinless, perfect life. So Christ did. But our transgressions, our sins, the things that, uh, the errors we've fallen, Christ paid for those. On the cross, he took that punishment. And here's the thing. Christ on the cross had really big words, three massive words. These words are so massive, they, they have an, an eternal impact on your soul. It's, these are the three words that Christians anchor their souls to. Three words. It is finished. You want to know the message of Christianity, it can be summarized there. It is finished. But those are mere words unless backed with some serious action. What was finished? All the sin and all the punishment that we deserve, he took upon himself. Bearing the wrath that it deserves. Literally on the cross, what we have is we have Jesus Christ suffering the death that we should have deserved. It's not on the cross that we just get a removal of sin. Actually, something is supplied. We actually get the righteousness of Christ. When he says that it's finished, it's not just, here, your sins are forgiven. He actually says, here's the full amount of my righteousness, and now I'm going to reconcile you to God. But he says it is finished. But here's the thing. Those are just words if he doesn't walk out of the tomb and show that he actually has complete power over death. And he did. All of his, all of his words were backed up with the action of an empty tomb. In other words, the greatest proof that a Christian has that it's one and done is Jesus Christ walking out of the tomb. And in essence, what he's doing is he's holding up three heads, Satan, sin, and death. And he's saying, your greatest enemies, your greatest threat, the, the, the thing you can't fix, the thing that you can't get victory over, the thing that you can't do, I've done it for you. It's one. It's done. You know that A Christian, if you're here, hear this. Be in 1 Corinthians 15. This morning, someone said to me, even before service started, 
Pastor, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. I don't, in a sense, I don't need to because I know what he has done. It says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Pay attention to verse 56. The sting of death is sin. Jesus Christ, literally, Jesus on the cross, dealt with your sin and my sin. And the, and, and the power of sin is the law. He fulfilled the law. Verse 57, this is it. But thanks be to God who gives. The Greek word there is grants. Who grants, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? We don't look at the message of Christianity. We don't look at the cross and go, that's cool. We look at the message of the cross and we look at the message of Christianity that's one and done and we go, that's mine. In Christ, he gives us victory. You might feel like your sin has defeated you. You might feel shameful and dirty and guilty. You might feel fearful, but I'm telling you, what's accurate is this. In Christ, you are victorious because he gives you his victory over sin, which means this, your life is not defined by your sin or your ability to overcome it. Your life is defined by his victory over sin and him giving it to you. He grants it, he gives it, and so your life is hidden in the victory of Christ. I believe this is why Paul says in, in, in Romans 8.34, he's like, who can condemn you? That's this question, he goes, who can condemn you? If Jesus died for you, and he goes, and even more so, if he raised for you, who's going to condemn you? He goes on to say, who can separate you from the love of God? He mentions all sorts of stuff. Death, there's nothing that can. Why? Because it's one and done. The greatest threat has been removed. The call for Christians and non-Christians here today is to understand this, is that we're not called, or the message of Christianity, I would say, is not we can be victorious. The message of Christianity is simply this. We put our faith in the one who was victorious for us because we can't do it ourselves. Let me close with this to finish the Haru Onado story. 30 years after people searched and searched for him, a college dropout named Norio Suzuki decided he was going to search for Lieutenant Onado. Where so many others had failed, Suzuki su succeeded. He found uh, Lieutenant Onado and tried to convince him that the war was over. Onado explained that he would only surrender if his commander ordered him to do so. If his commander ordered him to do so. Suzuki traveled back to Japan and found Onado's former commander, Major Taniguchi. On March 9th, 1974, 30 years later, Suzuki and Taniguchi met Onada at a pre-appointed place, and Major Taniguchi read the orders that stated all combat activity was to be ceased. Onada was shocked and at first disbelieving. It took some time for the news to sink in. Suddenly, everything went, went black, he said. A storm raged inside of me. I felt like a fool for having been so tense and cautious on the way here. Worse than that, what had I been doing all these years? Gradually, the storm subsided, and for the first time, he says this, I really understood my 30 years as a guerrilla fighter for the Japanese army were, ap were abruptly finished. This was the end. I pulled back the bolt on my rifle and unloaded the bullets. I eased off the pack that I'd always carried with me, and I laid the gun on top of it. Would I really have no more use for this rifle that I had polished and carried for these 30 years, like a baby? 
Had the war really ended 30 years ago, if it had, what had we died for? If what was happening was true, wouldn't it have been better if I died with them? What did he say? His commander came out, and his commander said, the army's over. Onada, pull the bolt out of your rifle. Hang it up. It's won. It's done. And for Christians, that's the message that we get to preach and proclaim to ourselves every day. Not just today, tomorrow, and every day this week, that, that the message of Christianity is that it's won and it's done, and the resurrection is proof that Christ gave that it's done and it's complete. We're reconciled to God. Amen? Let's pray.